Welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with fellow creatives and entrepreneurs about food, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion. So come on with me and let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm happy to have you here. I have some really exciting news I need to start this podcast with, and then we're going to get into the really fun guest for today. But my exciting news is that my book's cover has been revealed, so it is actually real. Uh, I am over the moon. So if you haven't seen it already, go check it out. Cheese, wine, and bread. It is coming to you April 2021, and it's now available for pre-order. So you guys, if you like cheese and or wine and or bread, um, you got to check it out. It is my journey around England, Italy, and France, deep diving into those things, discovering the magic of fermentation. Writing the book has been absolutely life-changing, and I cannot wait for everyone to get it in their hands. So please think about pre-ordering it, get excited about it, um, because I sure as heck am. Links to things are, of course, in the description of this show. All right, now on to today's guest, Jenny Linford. She is a food writer. She's a guardian of English cheese. She's a lot of things. She has had such an interesting past, and I really enjoyed talking to her about this. So that includes some time that she spent growing up in Ghana and Trinidad. She she lived for a while in Singapore and in Italy and, of course, London, where she still is. And when I say that Jenny is a food writer, uh, she's actually written over 20 books, but most notably probably is um, Food Lovers London. It's like a cosmopolitan shopping guide to London's food scene. It was first published in 1991 and it is still in print seven updated editions later. We talk about how she got that genius idea. Um, she also wrote a book all about British cheeses, which, come on, you know, I love that. And her most recent book, The Missing Ingredient. Uh, I love this book. It's about time as the universal invisible ingredient. So let's go ahead and hop into my conversation with Jenny. We're both in London, but of course, because of COVID, talking to each other over Zoom. I'd like to start with this fascinating past that I have just gotten snippets of in your writing, which was that as a teenager, you lived in Italy. You've also lived in Singapore. I mean, um, you've traveled all around the world, of course, for your books. Um, But let's just start with like, where are you from and include all of the travels therein? (laughs) Well, I am a Londoner. I was born in London um, to an English father and a Singaporean mother. Ah. My English father, (laughs) yes, was he was a very adventurous librarian, which I think people don't expect librarians to be adventurous, but my father (laughs) was and is. And and he, so when I was six months, we were were whisked off to Ghana, where he went to teach librarianship. So I was six months baby in Ghana. Then we went to Trinidad, again, to teach librarianship. Then we went to Singapore, where my mother was from, and I lived there for four years. Came back to London from eight to 12. Then my father got a job, a very interesting job in Florence, set up the European University Institute Library there, um, and we went there. I went very reluctantly, um, <laughs> dragged away from my secondary school and my friends. I can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, as a pre-teen. Yeah, it was quite funny, and I would say to um, my friends' mothers in a very way big on way, 
we're going to Italy. And they go, oh, where are you going to go? And I'd say, Florence, in this very grumpy teenage way. And they go, oh, how wonderful. Florence is beautiful. And I just thought, I'm not going to think so, because I was so cross. And that was we, the last thing you wanted to hear. Exactly. I didn't really care whether it was beautiful. And then we, you know, then we landed in Pisa and drove across to Florence. And I looked and saw my first hillside little village and thought, I think I might have to change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing that it like dawned on you so immediately upon landing that like, okay, I really got it. I fell in love with Italy and I went to the American School of Florence there. So then I was not only in Italy, but I had an experience of American culture, at American culture. So then were you you sad to leave after three years there? Well, I'm... I wasn't away, but at least I was very happy to come back to London. I did love, um, yeah, I, there are many things I love about England and English culture and way of life. Um, yeah, you know, I didn't enjoy being uprooted all the time. It was always sad because I was always leaving friends and starting all over again. That's no fun if you're, for anyone, I don't think, but particularly for a child, really. But I did, um, but I was also happy to be back in England. And um, as a great reader, it was partly, I think I was happy to be back in a land of books that I could afford to buy. So So travel is something that shows up in all your work, whether that be in a kind of more microcosm type way of traveling all around London, as you did with your first book, um, you know, highlighting the different food all around London, um, or whether it be about cheeses of England and you traveled all around England or the UK, actually, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So all over the place on, on yeah. the island. And, um, and then, of course, for your most recent book, The Missing Ingredient, um, the, and I love, the, I love the subtitle, but is it The Curious Role of Time in Food and Flavor? For that book, you also you travel all around the world. For you, I'm, I'm wondering if there is a correlation between all the pickup and travel and living many different places you did as a as a child and teenager, and then connecting that and having that be such a part of your work as an adult. That's a really. I think you fit on something that's very integral to me. I think I had. I think I experienced so much nostalgia as I moved around. Um, and I ended up being, you know, very nostalgic for Singapore, very nostalgic for Italy. When I was in Italy, I was very nostalgic for England. You know, like we would plead with people to bring packets of cheese and onion crisps and mm. jars of Marmite to Italy. You could buy jars of Marmite at huge expense from a tiny shop called the Oldie English Stores near the Joyman in Florence. <laughs> um, and it was, I think I just really became aware of how rich and diverse the world is. And also subconsciously, I think I also became aware of what, how food it has a very connecting or powerful role in that, you know, that I, and I think I was lucky because of my age, you know, it was pre-internet, um, in a funny way, the world, you knew, you knew so much less about the world because it was so much harder to access information, to access images, you know, there were no video footage online. So you went somewhere with, you know, with very little information and you experienced it in a really visceral way. Mm. And so Parmesan in, in London had been a sort of really horrible little thing that's not a catsick in a little, <laughs> little sort of tub, dried, and it was like, 
why would you eat it? And then you went to Italy and it was like, Parma, the waiter, come, Parmigiano. And he would grate it, you know, over your food. And it was a sort of velvety, rich, umami deliciousness. <laughs> so I think I had this real sense of, of experiencing these countries through, I mean, I think I was lucky because Singapore and Italy have got very strong food cultures in very different ways. But they really lodged in my head. And I think coming back to London and being this nostalgic person one of the things that gave me the idea for Food Lovers London was I was trying to, to find, it was much harder to find ingredients in those days. This is in the late 80s. Um, and if you wanted something as simple as ricotta cheese or lemongrass, you would either go to an Italian deli in Soho or to Chinatown. You know, they weren't in English supermarkets. I'm trudging down, you know, around to try and buy these ingredients. There should be a guide. You know, that was my sort of, that was the starting point. Ah. For this book, which was a sort of multicultural food shopping guide to London in its first incarnation, Food Lovers London. In, in, in its first incarnation, and there have been many incarnations since, so you clearly, seven editions? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. And so well, you, you clearly hit on something that resonated with people, and, and this is awesome to hear that like it was through your lived experience and simply observing things that you recognized that void. Yeah, I it was, you know, it just struck me as that would be such a use. I think I'm quite a practical person and it would be so useful. And again, you know, because this is pre-internet, it's very hard to imagine now how important information mm. was, you know, printed information in books or in newspapers was sort of vital pre-internet, actually. You know, it was either information either oral or written. So therefore, you know, you would, I would have to have met you and asked you. So I went on this amazing journey of exploration um, of London, writing that book, because I travelled around, I went to all, you know, I went all over, I talked to communities, I researched, you know, I read to two food writers like Claudia Roden and Evelyn Rose, a very famous Jewish writer, and said to Claudia Roden, you know, where, where would I shop for Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern ingredients? And to Evelyn Rose, where would I go for Jewish food? And they wrote back very courteously. And I trotted off to some bit of London I had never been to and found the shop and you know it was really it was so much legwork it you know having those seven editions I've walked I've tramped this pavement you know it's unbelievable <laughs> London is so big and so diverse but of course in fact doing it over these years that I've done it um I've seen London change you know that's that's sort of fascinating too yeah I can I can only imagine in this crazy year um, since COVID hit, you really have um, risen as kind of like a guardian of English cheese. Um, and <laughs> lovely expression, I love that. And um, you, you were uh, quoted in an article in the New Yorker, written by Ruby Tando. And it's for you. It's really about sharing the passion like you have the passion and you're just like and you're just like I can almost like see you in my mind just like shaking people and being like this is amazing and like we need to we need to keep this alive otherwise it will go away I think, you know that is you've really summed me up that's very you know I am quite evangelistic I think because I lived in Singapore and Italy and in those two countries um there's a real democracy about food that and those food cultures are very alive and food is for everyone. Um, and you would go to the chili crowd in Singapore and there'd be really posh cars parked outside and you'd sit on tiny rickety tables. And, you know, it wasn't about service. It wasn't about table linen. It was about really good food. And everyone you know, knew that. Everyone. And it wasn't about 
um, sort of money or style or fashion or lifestyle. It was just much more deeply embedded in a much more democratic way, which I think that sadly, you know, in Britain it, it isn't. And that's sort of one of my sorrows that it's, you know, Britain is a very class-ridden society and food is very class-ridden. Um, and, and that's, but I know from having lived in these other countries that it can be different. Um, mm. So that's why I sort of, so I think I bring that, yeah, <laughs> to, you know, in my vision of what I would like Finn to be, I think I bring that, that with me. Something that I've been thinking about as I've written my book is um, acknowledging the lack of diversity uh, that I see in cheese and and wine and even to a certain extent um like the boulangerie scene in in france um i'm just curious if you if you have any thoughts on that or if that's something you've also noticed well it it is interesting i mean i think that is i think in britain and cheese i think it is partly that if you think of the farmhouse tradition in britain you know farmers in britain are historically British and therefore sort of white English, you know, that is the history. I um, mean, you know, there are some people going out and changing that, but a, a handful. So really in a funny way, the cities, you know, I think one of the things why I've always loved writing about London as much as I've done is that London is this great diverse place. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things I do on a positive note about British food culture, I think there is an openness, um, particularly obviously in London, but I think it's bigger than just London. There's a willingness to try things, a willingness to experiment, a willingness to eat things from around the world, um, that sort of cosmopolitan approach to food. I remember interviewing a German baker, Gerhard, he said at Conditor and Cook, and he was just saying in Germany, you know, there's such an emphasis on skills and acquiring skills and apprenticeship, and it means you're a very good baker technically. But Britain, which has got very, it's like, yeah, you want to be a baker? you know, open up shop, call yourself a baker, bake some things. <laughs> and actually, but, but, you know, but it allowed people to be really, so he had a little farm, you know, conjunct cook, he had his little, you know, rude cupcakes and this sort of sort of impish sense of humour, which I think from talking to him, I, I got the impression he thought in Germany that wouldn't have gone down very well because it was such a classic repertoire, that straight jacket. Um, I would love for you to read a, a little passage from um, The Missing Ingredient, if you would be so kind. Yeah. I really love this book. I enjoy it, and I have referenced it again and again. Um, it's almost like an encyclopedia, but with uh, but presented in such an interesting way, right? In seconds and minutes and hours and so forth and so on. Um, and but so just to give people a sense of the book, I would love for you to um, read on page six, uh, starting just at the top there, and um, and just that that first paragraph. That first paragraph. Yes. Right. Here we go. Eating is essential for life. It is an act we repeat over and over again throughout our lives to sustain our bodies. Historically, it was understood that the preparation of food took time, from sourcing ingredients through hunting, fishing, growing and trading, to the gutting, plucking, picking, kneading, pounding, grinding required before cooking could begin. Today, labour-saving devices from bread makers to food processors make food preparation quicker and easier than ever before. Despite this, we seem to begrudge the time spent preparing and making food. The impatience that characterises modern life is manifest in our approach to cooking. Cooking from scratch is the term now given to what was simply called cooking, by my parents when I was a child. 
How funny is that? How quickly things have changed that like now it's like, ooh, cooking from scratch. It's like, uh, yeah, slash cooking. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is when I started as a food writer, the idea that people uh, wouldn't cook was just, you couldn't really have thought it. You would have assumed, you know, that you had to, you had to cook to eat. Yeah. It was, you know, there weren't microwaves. I mean, they obviously were around, but they just weren't widely available. There wasn't a great, you know, there wasn't that sort of uh, choice of ready meals. Ready meals weren't as good. It was just a sort of money thing that you, you cooked, you know, you, if you wanted to eat, you cooked. And then, and then sort of really, and it's just really sad if you like cookbooks to then realise that actually, you know, I keep being told people don't really cook anymore. They look, they watch it on telly, but they don't do it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I don't want to hear that because, yeah. you know, it's a very empowering thing. I think that's one of the things, I think if you love you know, being able to cook, it means you control what you put in your mouth. It means that you know where it came from. You know how it's made. You know, you're not eating processed food and you're not eating ultra processed food. Um, so you're not eating you know, these things like, you know, salt and sugar and fat content. But now the, the things that are added to food are so much more complex and we just don't know enough about them. Um, so in my sort of, not that way, I just think, yeah, start from raw ingredients and cook it. And, and then, you know, it's pleasure too. It's a great source of, you know, it's hospitality, it's cooking for your friends, cooking for your, I love cooking for my friends and my family. Me too, me too. What was your biggest takeaway from interviewing all of the people that you interviewed in this book all around the world? I, I think I came away with a real sense of how, uh, you know, the making of food had been industrialized and speeded up and, if you've been speeded up and you're getting great food, that's fine, but it's not, you know, it's basically a lot of our food has been debased by industrialization, by, you know, um, the pressure to make it convenient and quick. And I, and these people that I interviewed, you know, they all care about food and I care about food and they make things with time and trouble. Um, if you go to a cheese, a good cheesemonger, like Neil's Yard Dairy or, La Fromagerie, you know, the cheeses are not cheap. And you think, oh, compared to supermarket cheese. But the reason is, you know, one is industrialized, one is made on a small scale. There's so much time and care invested in those. Those prices are not cynical prices. Those prices reflect the time and care. So I found it very inspiring to meet all these amazing people. I've had a wonderful comment from someone, she read my book, and she said, it's just like, you know, I'm sitting here and you introduced me to these amazing people and I want to know them all, you know, and, um, and so I, I, but I wanted to sort of pay respect and tribute to what they, you know, to this, to their task, to how they make food, how they care about food, you know, to, from, you know, great chefs, I interviewed some amazing chefs like Pierre Kaufman, you know, all those years he spent learning about food, how to handle it, his respect for ingredients, that was manifest when he spoke, um, you know, but it was just really, really diverse, but it's just, a, but food is a great accessible thing as well, you know, anyone can can learn to cook, can, you know, can take a bit of trouble buying, can go to a market, get some cheap ingredients, make something delicious. You know, it's a, it's a source of wonderful pleasure. And it's, I love what you said, it's human heritage. Uh, that, that rings really true. But I'm curious about how much your, um, your post-grad studies in journalism um, have helped you um, pull off a book like the missing ingredient, which is very much research and interview based. That's, 
yeah, that's an interesting question. I um, the, the course was three months. It was it was a way of getting in to the world of journalism because if you did that, you were taken a bit more seriously. Um, uh, I then went and worked on a very very dull food magazine, and, and I just thought, uh, it was like, wow, it's gone out of print now. I can't even remember what it was called. But I was like, I think. I think it made me realise I wanted to write books rather than journalism, funny enough, because I like the depth of a book. Um, because with a magazine, a monthly magazine, you'll spend a month with that text. And I was just, and it was, it was a very lightweight, dull magazine. So therefore that was, it was like an ordeal, you know. Um, so then I sort of thought, oh, I think I prefer books. I, but I always, in fact, funny for my writing, I've always loved both. I love the journalism. I love meeting people. And as you probably noticed, Katie, I'm very... You know, I think I am genuinely interested in people. Yeah, um, so I, like, I get that. I got that vibe <laughs> from you right away, Jenny. It's why I liked you so much from the get-go. <laughs> you know, I'm really interested in people. I meet people and I say things, I'll meet them again a year later. I go, oh, what happened? I go, oh, you remember that? Like, yeah, because I listened. I mean, I wish I think, you know, and that's... So when I came up with this idea, this very abstract idea of, of looking at time as an invisible ingredient in food, as well to have the idea, but it's like, how do you write it? You know, then I was thinking, okay, I'm thinking it can't be a book that's just about cookbooks that tell you because how long to cook a steak for, because it's very dull. This idea was more interesting than that. And cookbooks do that anyway. So for me, you know, I wanted to put the people in and their voices. I think I've, a lot of my writing is about putting other people's voices in my, being a conduit. I sort mm. of see myself as that. Um, so I always, you know, record people and I transcribe them, which takes forever, which is my least favourite thing to do. Um, but that's how I write. It just, it's quite a labour intensive way of writing. So definitely, yes, you're right. That journalism, because I've done over the years, I've done a lot of journalism as well as, you know, a number of books now, about 20 books. Um, so 20 I see books? Like yeah, it is about 20 now. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, over the years, you know. Are um, they, how many of them are food related? Most of them, but there is one on lighthouses, which was actually really exciting to do. It was a coffee, it was someone who wanted, she knew I wrote, you know, and she was like, oh, we're doing a beautiful picture book on lighthouses. And I was so pleased to do something different. I was like, yes, new new topic, all about the history of lighthouses. Loved it. <laughs> That's a, that is a quirky topic, but a fun one. It was fascinating. I mean, it was really, really, um, you know, things I just like, I like learning stuff, Katie. I'm such a little swap, you know, as a bookworm, as a girl, you know, I love information. I, yeah, I like, that's why I love my job is I'm always learning. And of course, food is such an enormous subject. You know, it's, you know, the more I learn, the more I understand how little I know. I mean, literally, that is true. Amen. Um, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I spent <laughs> however long of like two years of my life just deep diving into cheese, bread and wine and learned so much and more than anything have learned how much there still is to learn about all of those things. Which is great, which makes it exciting. You know, I think it's really interesting. Um, so that's what I love, you know, however much I learn about food, I'm never going to learn everything. You know, even if I went into something in enormous depth you know, there'll be so much more to learn. So, which is good, which is what I like, you know. Uh, yeah, I like being stimulated and interested. And I am. <laughs> so. so I um, end every episode by asking the guests the same question. So are you ready for it? I embraced. How do you keep it quirky? Keep my work quirky or my life quirky? Either. I keep my life, 
quirky, I would take it as meaning interesting and stimulating. I think I keep it by, I'm often working away on a project, which often takes me years to get off the ground. I'm, you know, I'm quite a stubborn person. You have to be, to be a writer, to get books published. Um, yeah, so I'll have, a, you know, I'll have something on the go that I'm working away. I've always got ideas of other things I want to write. <laughs> so, uh, and then I love the meeting of people, which of course in lockdown has been one of the great sadnesses of, of this crisis, is it's so much harder to get out and about and feel. Yeah, so I'm really missing that side of my life, which actually was before, you know, was always meeting people. And I always loved that. And I love, you know, I love those human interactions of, you know, that's why I like markets. I like standing in a queue, having a chat with someone, having a chat with a storekeeper. You know, that's my sort of shopping. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I don't, yeah, so I just keep it stimulating for myself by always having something on the go. One of my nieces is thinking, she wasn't advertising, she's thinking becoming a lawyer, but it, because, because of political reasons, she's becoming very engaged. And um, and I said to her, I said, look, you know what I do, it's never made me much money, but I have always, I've championed all the things I really care about doing it. I said, that is a satisfaction in doing something you believe in, but you know, or, or trying to spread the word about things that I care about, which is, I think, a lot of my writing, if rightly identified, is that. Jenny Linford, thank you so much for coming on the Keep It Quirky podcast. You all can follow her on Instagram at jlinford and on Twitter at Jenny Linford. And of course, check out all her books. Thanks as always to Funky BQ, Funky Brian, uh, for the theme song you're listening to. You can follow him on Instagram at bqfunk. And don't forget to check out my book, Cheese, Wine, and Bread, Discovering the Magic of Fermentation in England, Italy, and France. It is now available for pre-order. All right, guys, I hope all is well in your worlds. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you back here real soon. Don't forget to keep it quirky. Thank you.